Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number five, Numbers chapters four and five. The core story in Numbers chapter four is what is typically called the second Levite census. And the information is pretty straightforward, so we're not going to dwell here too long. And this census differs from the earlier Levite census that God himself performed, primarily that in this new census, the age range that would be counted would be from 30 to 50 years old. A narrow 20-year age range. Now remember, what was the age range of that first Levite census? Huh? No. One month. From one month on up. All right? And there was really no upper limit. All right? It was the census of the regular Israelites that began at 20 years. Now, the reason, though not specifically stated, for specifying this 30-year to 50-year age range is because of the heavy nature of the work that involves carrying sanctuary objects and pieces and doing all that guard duty around the wilderness tabernacle. And the thought is that these men must be very responsible, they must be emotionally mature, so as to perform their jobs with absolute dedication. And they must be physically able to lift heavy objects and defend that sanctuary in hand-to-hand combat if needed. So let's open our Bibles to Numbers 4 and we're going to read the whole chapter. Numbers chapter 4, 149, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Moshe and Aharon, Take a census of the descendants of Kahat, who are among the descendants of Levi, by clans and families, all those from 30 to 50, they will enter the core doing the work in the tent of meeting. Now here is how the descendants of Kahat are to serve in the tent of meeting and deal with these especially holy things. When the time comes to break camp, Aaron is to go in with his sons, take down the curtain, which serves as a screen, and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. On that, they are to place a covering of fine leather, and on top of that, spread an all-blue cloth. Then they are to insert the carrying poles. And on the table of showbread, they are to spread a blue cloth and place on it the dishes, incense pans, offering bowls and pitchers. The perpetual bread is to remain on the table. They are to spread on these things a scarlet cloth, cover them with a covering of fine leather and insert the poles. They are to take a blue cloth and cover the menorah for the light, its lamps, its tongs, its trays, the jars used to add oil to it. They are to wrap it up and all in its accessories in, in fine leather, place them on a carrying frame. And on the gold altar there to spread a blue cloth, cover it with a covering of fine leather and insert its carrying poles. There to take all the utensils they use when serving in the sanctuary and put them in a blue cloth, cover them with fine leather and place them on a carrying frame. Now after removing the greasy ashes from the altar, they're to spread a purple cloth over it and place on it all the utensils required for the altar service. 
the fire pans, the meat hooks, the shovels, basins, other utensils for the altar. Then they are to spread over it a fine leather covering and insert its carrying poles. Now when Aaron and his sons have finished covering all the holy furnishings and the holy utensils, when the camp is about to move forward, then the descendants of Kahat are to come and carry them. But they're not to touch the holy things so they don't die. These things are the responsibility of the descendants of Kahat in the tent of meeting. Now, Eleazar, the son of Aaron the Cohen, Aaron the high priest, is to be responsible for the oil, for the light, the, fl- uh, the fragrant incense, the continuing grain offering, and the anointing oil. He is to be in charge of the entire tabernacle, everything in it, including the sanctuary and its furnishings. Now, Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Do not cut off the clan of Kahat from among the Levites. Rather, do this for them so that they will live and not die. When they approach these especially holy things, Aaron and his sons are to go in. And you're to assign each one his task. But the descendants of Kahat are not to go in and even look at the holy things as they're being covered. If they do, they'll die. Now, Adonai said to Moses, Take a census of the descendants of Gershon also by clans and families. Now count all those between 30 and 50 and all who will enter the core doing the work of serving in the tent of meeting. The Gershon families are to be responsible for serving and for transporting loads. They're to carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, its covering, the fine leather covering above it, the screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tapestries for the courtyard, and the screen for the entrance Uh, to the courtyard by the tabernacle and around the altar along with the ropes and all the utensils they need for their service. And they are to do the work connected with these things. Aaron and all of his sons are to supervise all the work of the Gershon clan in transporting loads and in serving and to assign them who is to carry what. This is how the Gershon families are to serve in the tent of meeting, and they're to be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the Cohen. Now, as for the descendants of Merari, take a census by clans and families of all those between 30 and 50, all will who, be, who will be in the court doing the work of serving in the tent of meeting. Their service for the tent of meeting will be to carry the frames, crossbars, post sockets of the tabernacle, also the posts for the surrounding courtyard, with their sockets, tent pegs, ropes, and other accessories, and everything having to do with their service. You are to assign particular loads to specific persons by name. This is how the Merari families are to serve in the tent of meeting, directed by Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Now Moses, Aaron, and the community leaders took a census of the descendants of Kahat by their clans and families, all those between 30 and 50 years old who were part of the corps serving in the tent of meeting. Registered by their families, they numbered 2,750. These are the ones counted from the Kahat families of all those serving in the tent of meeting whom Moses and Aaron enumerated in keeping with the order given by Adonai through Moses. The census of the descendants of Gershon by their clans and families, all those between 30 and 50 years old who were part of the corps serving in the tent of meeting, yielded 2,630, registered by their clans and families. These are the ones counted from the families of the descendants of Gershon of all those serving in the tent of meeting whom Moses and Aaron enumerated in keeping with the order given by Adonai. 
the census of the families of the descendants of Merari by their clans and families. All those between 30 and 50 years old who were part of the corps serving in the tent of meeting yielded 3,200 registered by their families. These are the ones counted from the families of the descendants of Merari who Moses and Aaron enumerated in keeping with the order given by Adonai through Moses. The census of the Levites whom Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel enumerated by their clans and families, all those between 30 and 50 years old who were part of those working to serve and carrying the loads in the tent of meeting yielded a total of 8,580 persons. According to Adonai's order, they were appointed by Moses, each one to his specific service or work. They were also enumerated as Adonai had ordered Moses. Tribalism is the culture of the Bible. And until we can ingest that and deal with it, we're going to miss a lot of what is happening in the many narratives that shape the scriptures. In our Western civilization, the ways of tribalism are either usually not known to us or they're terribly misunderstood. It's important to grasp that tribalism is morally neutral. Okay? It's neither good nor bad of itself. Tribalism was a very natural societal structure for an ancient world. Okay? Tribalism was the dominant societal structure worldwide until about medieval times in Europe because it was based on family ties and the bond of blood has always been instinctive, intuitive, and very powerful to mankind. By medieval times, European societal structure became transformed by a combination of religious and national identity. Thus, tribalism started to take a back seat in that part of the world. In the late 17th and 18th centuries, yet another transformation took hold in Europe and the New World as well as guided by the leaders and philosophers that of, of that period that history now calls the Enlightenment. Okay? Where religious identity was brought into question and it got replaced with atheistic views and this desire for purely secular governments and societal structures based on economics rather than on a common set of beliefs or on blood. The rub is that the Enlightenment also tended to dissolve family ties. Okay, family ties that are the heart of tribalism. And thus today, Western societies have become collections and loose networks of small family units that anthropologists call nuclear families. Okay. That is, that the concept of family has become redefined from biblical times as generally consisting of a mother, a father, and their immediate children. That's a family. The term, by the way, nuclear family is not referring to the invention of the atom bomb. Okay? But it does provide us with a 
good illustration. Just as an atom in its natural state has a nucleus at its center, right, with electrons and protons whizzing around it in orbit, right, the new modern Western family is akin to that nucleus, but stripped of all the electrons and protons. Okay. Within the new definition of family in the West, legal family rights are usually limited to a two-generation relationship. Grandparents are considered outsiders. Aunts and uncles and cousins are now legally, and in most instances practically, distant relatives who have only the most minor tie to your personal nuclear family. And of course, we're all aware, especially here, that an even further evolution of family relationship is well underway in the West that negates the need for long-term commitment or bonds among individuals. And even for the presence of a mother and a father as head of a family and for the desirability of blood ties. Essentially, the newest modern social unit that's being advocated and legislated in this this ever-widening circle in the developed world is much more akin to a pack mentality. Whereby mostly unrelated and uncommitted individuals choose to band together for a brief time to satisfy some immediate or intermediate need of companionship or group protection or perhaps a perceived economic advantage. That's one of the reasons that we've seen this enormous springing up of gangs, not only here but in Europe. In other words, we're today so far removed from tribalism that it's near to impossible for our minds to even comprehend what it is. And thus we immediately tend to see it as negative or a backward institution. All we know about tribes is what we watch in cowboy and western movies. But it might surprise you to know that despite the best efforts of the UN and the world's more powerful governments, most of the world today is still tribal. Thus, one of the many sources of clashes that we see between Islam and Judeo-Christianity concerns a tribal mentality that's based purely on family and faith versus a Western society that now revolves around individualism and moral relativism. Big clash. Where I'm leading you with this is to understand that in order to grasp the Bible we need to understand tribal structure and mentality. And the most influential societal unit within a tribal culture was the clan. A a clan is just nothing more than a large extended family that often has its own economy and government if it's grown large enough over time. A clan's identity invariably goes back to a founder that the clan was named after. Loyalties of its members are inviolable and they can stretch back for centuries. Further, it's usual that a few clans will become dominant within a tribe 
while others become inferior, subservient, or they even die out and become absorbed by more dominant ones. Thus, when we hear of the term tribal warfare, even today, or in ancient times, more often than not, what it's referring to is not battling between two tribes, but rather fighting among the clans that make up a single tribe. Okay. In tribalism, there's a never-ending battle for clan superiority. Within tribalism, the status of the clan is everything. Okay. And underlying the texts of our Bible is this tribal struggle for dominance. Okay. Keep this in mind, especially as we study Torah and the books of the Older Testament. It's going to show up front and center here all throughout Numbers. Now, in Numbers 4, the first clan of the Levites to be counted in this new census is the Kohathites, or Kahat. And this is different from the first census, because in the census prior, the clan of Gershon was counted first, because Gershon was the firstborn. Now, the probable reason that the Kohathites are given priority status in this census is because this clan transported the most sacred and therefore most dangerous object. Okay. Further, Moses and Aaron, as the leaders not only of the Levites but of all Israel, belonged, as it turns out, to the clan of Kohath. So this lent a lot of tribal status to the tribe of Kohath, or rather the clan of Kohath. Now, as regards tribal status among the various Levite clans, we're not going to get into all that right now. But I want you to know that over time, the order of preeminence among the Levite clans would change. Okay? Even some duties would shift from laymen to Levites, then from Levites to priests. And this greatly bothers some Bible scholars because they fear that information we discover in later books of the Old Testament that sometimes paints a different picture of the priesthood are errors or serious revisions that were made for political purposes as regards these changes in how the priests and the Levites operated. Now, personally, I find that it makes the scriptures all the more believable. Okay. Because even though Israel was slowly developing a different culture from the rest of the world they didn't start living on another planet over the centuries everything from changing weather patterns to technology advances to fluctuating societal demographics to more simple tangible things like the eventual decommissioning of the wilderness tabernacle and replacing it with the permanent temple even what nation might be ruling over Israel at any given time, Assyria, Babylon, the Romans, whatever, make it such that the precise way rituals and ceremonies would or even could be performed and who did them had to change. If we were to read that these things never ever changed, statuses of clans never ever changed, over a period of 14 to 15 centuries from the moment they were first introduced, it simply wouldn't pass the smell test. It just doesn't work that way in life. For instance, P. 
people today can argue all they want, and they're doing it right now as we sit here, since we're approaching Passover, all right, what is proper kosher food regulations? But in reality, nobody can perfectly follow the kosher food laws as laid out in the Torah because there's no temple to dedicate meat portions, no priesthood to preside over the slaughter. Okay. So we do the best we can under the circumstances. There are no fields and croplands that I'm aware of in America that are regulated by means of the Shabbat and the Jubilee laws. So what comes off of them is by definition not kosher. Okay. In fact, very little of the food grown in Israel follows the law in such a way as to be deemed biblically kosher. Okay. We can argue over exactly how to celebrate the various required biblical feasts. But at least for three of them that require pilgrimages to the Holy Land in order to be efficacious, we can't do them exactly as stated, no matter what, because the main point of going to Jerusalem was to worship and sacrifice at the temple, not just visiting the city. Some rituals, like the water libation ceremony, which could be done to a degree, were required to be done atop the great altar, which doesn't even exist anymore. These are just a few examples that today's Jews face and we face as believers in attempting to cope with biblical regulations that due to circumstances mostly beyond our control simply can't be accomplished fully as laid down. And so did the Israelites face this exact thing as the years rolled on even immediately following Mount Sinai. So don't let some of these changes we're going to run across. Even as we move from Numbers to Deuteronomy, throw you. These changes in circumstance weren't a surprise to Jehovah. And the whole point to the exact nature of the required holy rituals revolved around teaching and obedience. Not some magical or mystical nature of hand movements or the use of golden bowls instead of copper bowls. Or the power of incense burning, or whether one kind of food is necessarily healthier than another kind, and so on and so forth. Now, as we move into verse 5, we find that sacred objects and furnishings of the tabernacle were just too holy to be handled directly by the Levites. So they had to be wrapped up and packed first by the priests. And then they were transferred to the care of the Kohathites for transport. So that the hands of those who were not of a high enough holy status wouldn't accidentally touch a holy object or even look upon it. For example, we see that the inner veil of the sanctuary had to be taken down by the priests and then they used it to wrap the Ark of the Covenant. And then over that, a waterproof layer of probably porpoise skins uh, was added. And the final layer of the package was a special pure blue cloth. And then poles were inserted to carry that precious cargo. 
The priest accomplished all this preparation before he turned it over to the Kohathites, who were allowed only to handle the sacred object by means of touching the carrying poles. Okay. In fact, later on in the Bible, we're going to read of a couple of different incidents where the Ark of the Covenant was being transported and appeared it was about to fall over. So some unauthorized person, meaning a non-Levite or a non-priest, just simply instinctively reached out their hand to steady it, and what happened to them? Struck dead instantly. Well, next to the table of showbread was also to have a blue cloth laid over it, and upon the table various utensils were, were to be placed. Um, then a covering of red cloth was used to wrap up the whole thing. Over that then went a waterproof layer again of probably it was porpoise skins. The table had rings built into it. You see them here. All right, so that poles could be inserted for carrying. Um, the next most important item was the menorah. All right, and the various implements used to tend it. They were wrapped in a blue cloth porpoise skins over that and then the menorah was laid on a special wooden frame made to transport it in verse 11 the golden altar of incense that stood in front of the paroquet that inner veil between the holy place and the holy of holies had a blue cloth spread over it again covered with a waterproof covering and then next the remaining surface service vessels the golden bowls and such that were used inside the tabernacle were wrapped up in a blue cloth, dolphins or porpoise skins for maximum protection, and then they were put on a wooden frame. Well, now that the priests had packed up all the items used inside of the tent, the texts turned their attention to things outside of the tent, inside the courtyard. And of course it begins with the uh, altar of burnt offering. It says, after the greasy ashes are removed, in other words, they're not going to be taking the ashes with them, not much point, a purple cloth is placed over it. And upon that, all the items, like the fire tongs and the blood basins, were laid. And then over that, waterproof covering. All the sacred items now having been covered, prepared by the priests, they're turned over to the clan of Kohat for transport. None of these idols, not even their coverings, were to be touched by the Kohathites. The penalty for that infraction, death. Rather, most of the larger objects all had rings. The rest that did not were laid on wooden frames. The wooden frame was all that was touched. Now, verse 16 tells us that Eleazar is the supervisor over all the Levites as regards their transporting of these sacred objects. And the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, tells them that the supervision over the Kohathites must be total because their job is so dangerous that nothing can be left to chance. One glance at an unauthorized set of eyes at an uncovered piece of holy furniture could be fatal. We begin to see now why God insisted that only men from 30 to 50 years of age could do this. Younger men might be too cavalier and their duties find themselves dead. Okay. Now the clans of Gershon are to be recounted in 
The count included only those males, again, between 30 and 50. And in this particular age group, uh, it, it, rather, it's this particular group, all right, they're to deal with items that have already been once called out, primarily the coverings of the sacred tent. These men are to be under the direct supervision of another son of Aaron, a guy named Ithamar. Similar orders are given in verse 29 for the clans of Merari. They're also under the supervision of Ithamar. Starting in verse 34, we get the result of the latest count and we find out that the Kohathite clan had 2,750 men, the Gershonites, 2,630, and the Merari clan, 3,200. Total, 8,550 men. Now, it's interesting how we watch a foundational principle of God dividing, electing and separating occur in so many parallel ways God divided and separated the entire population of the world into two groups Hebrews and Gentiles these Hebrews now the nation of Israel were also divided into two groups the twelve tribes and the tribe of Levi. And we've recently seen the tribe of Levi, what? Divided into two groups. The priests and the non-priests, called the Levites. And in the process of dividing, electing, and separating, absolutely no merit is stated for why one certain line of people was about to be of a higher holy status than another. There was nothing inherently special about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. There was nothing inherently special about the, about the tribe of Levi. And there was nothing particularly special about Aaron's descendants who were to be the priests of Israel. God simply for his own good reasons elected them. About the best that can be said for the person or the group that got divided away from the others and assigned a special higher level of holiness above the others is that that person or group accepted the offer. That, dear friends, is the pattern of those of us today who are set apart as saved believers. We're no better than anybody else. We haven't done something to earn or merit special favor. We haven't lived better lives. By God's grace, we were offered this salvation that came upon the back of our Messiah, Yeshua. And when presented the offer, we simply accepted it. By accepting it, we were assigned a special level of righteousness and holiness above all others on this planet. Our salvation in Yeshua is as much a mystery as to why me as it was to why Abraham and not somebody else why Isaac and not Ishmael why Jacob and not Esau why the tribe of Levi and not one of the other tribes why the line of Aaron and not one of his brothers yet it is so that's how it is right? because it's God's will Israel is a completely set-apart nation for God and the rest of the world isn't. 
And as such Israelites today, we'd say Jews are born into a special, special higher status that you or I as Gentiles were not born into. The tribe of Levi was given a holy status a notch above the rest of Israel. The priestly line of Aaron was given a yet higher holy status than the other families and clans that made up the Levites. And the clan of Eleazar, son of Aaron, was given the highest holy status as being the line of high priests, not just regular priests. Now we saw last week that the Levite clan of Kehat was also given a slightly higher status above the other clans of the regular non-priestly Levites. Therefore, they were assigned the honor of transporting the holiest items from the tabernacle. Now, there are a couple more principles woven in to numbers that we're going to find Paul expound upon in the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. One is that God demands order, not chaos. And thus he creates hierarchies of authority. Why? Because it is his, it's, it's his pattern to do it. We learn in the Bible that even heaven itself is built upon hierarchies. So naturally, the physical world follows suit to the level that the physical is able to follow suit. All human life has worth. But God gives higher and lower worth to various humans for his purposes, just as he gives higher and lower status to his spiritual heavenly servants, the angels and the cherubim. There is a variety of service to the Lord available to be done. There's plenty to go around. But it's all for the purpose of serving the same God. Listen to Paul briefly in 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but it's the same Lord. And there's a variety of effects, but it's the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And just as Israel is a congregation with a God-ordained structure, so is the believing body of the disciples of Yeshua to be a divinely ordered structure. Listen to Paul again in 1 Corinthians 12.28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All aren't teachers, are they? All aren't workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All don't speak with tongues, do they? All don't interpret, do they? See, this second principle that sort of interlaces with the first one 
is that it takes different skills and different jobs working together to perform different functions to form an entire and complete community. Okay. Naturally, we find this principle addressed by Paul in the New Testament because it's but the Torah carried forward in the light of the advent of Messiah Jesus. God spoke to Moses, who took those instructions to Aaron, who took those instructions to the priests, who took those instructions to the people. And as we, there were a variety of tasks to be done, there were therefore a variety of offices established to see to them. The priests were created to be the keepers and teachers of the law. The Levites were the police. They were the servants to the priests. Even some among the priests and Levites were carefully broken down into separate and finite units with specific tasks. Some of them tended to certain parts of the sacred furniture. Others carried plants. <laughs> All right, tent pegs. Others of them carried, um, or rather performed guard duty, so on. Yes, and some held much higher status than others, but each had a very critical role to play. No role was menial, except in the minds of men. Such is all this with the body of Christ today. No one set aside. No one is given a pass. Everybody has his duty. Not one believer ever got passed over for a spiritual gift. That one chooses to ignore his assignment and sit on the sidelines doesn't mean he doesn't have a purpose awaiting for him if he'll accept it. We can complain all we want that the church is perhaps broken and malfunctioning and point to what others within the church do wrong. But at least they do. At least they stand up at the plate and take a swing. The system that God set up for his people is not about 10% doing and 90% observing. Worship and walking with God is a contact sport. It's dangerous. You can get hurt. Okay. If you're not battered and bruised to some degree, then you've probably been sitting it out too long. This kind of passivity wasn't tolerated in Moses' day, nor in King David's day, certainly not in Jesus' day. We should not think that God is going to allow us to get away with it now, expecting no repercussions. Let's move on to Numbers chapter 5. Adonai said to Moses, order the people of Israel to expel from the camp of every, uh, from the camp everyone with sarat, skin disease, everyone with a discharge, whoever is unclean because of touching a corpse, both male and female you must expel, put them outside the camp so they won't defile their camp where I live among you. The people of Israel did this and put them outside the camp. The people of Israel did what Adonai said to Moses. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any kind of sin against another person and thus breaks faith with Adonai, he incurs guilt. 
Let's stop there for a couple of minutes. Numbers chapter 15, or rather chapter 5, pardon me, is another of those ventures into scripture that at first glance seems as though repetition is the mode of the day, and therefore there's nothing additional really to gain from it. Let me say before I read all of this Torah portion that this is far less repetition than it is progressive revelation. There's so much to gain from even the first couple of paragraphs including that one I just read to you, we could spend a month in this chapter and not even scratch its surface. Okay, We're assuredly not going to spend a month in this chapter. But I just want you to be aware of its significance. Now, if we were to give a name to this chapter, and that's the reason I read the first few verses, cleansing the camp of the unclean probably would be an appropriate name. Now that the tabernacle is part of the Israelites' daily life, and therefore God's presence among them is assured, it's necessary that the sacredness of the entire tabernacle area, the tent and its courtyard, is kept free from impurity and defilement. Now we discussed this subject of clean and unclean and of holy and uh, common in the past, in past lessons. But since it's been a while, um, we'll review that in due time. For now, I want you to be aware that clean and unclean, holy and common, are not two different ways of saying the same thing. They each denote something different. It's always best to read the entire chapter as a whole so that the context is clearly established. So let's continue reading now where I left off. And then we're going to also reread some portions as we go along. Let's back up one verse. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any kind of sin against another person and thus breaks faith with Adonai, he incurs guilt. He must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his guilt, add 20%, and give it to the victim of his sin. But if the person has no relative to whom restitution can be made for the guilt, then what is given in restitution for guilt will belong to Adonai, that is, to the priests, in addition to the ram of atonement through which atonement is made for him. Every contribution which the people of Israel consecrate and present to the priest will belong to him. Anything an individual consecrates will be his own to allocate among the priests, but what a person gives to the priest will belong to him. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, that is, if another man goes to bed with her without her husband's knowledge so that she becomes impure secretly and there's no witness against her and she wasn't caught in the act, then if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife and she has become impure, or for that matter, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife and she has not become impure, he's to bring his wife to the priest along with the offering for her 
two quarts of barley flour on which he has not poured olive oil or put frankincense because it's a grain offering for jealousy, a grain offering for remembering, for recalling guilt to mind. The priest will bring her forward and place her before Adonai. The priest will put holy water in a clay pot and then the priest will take some of the dust on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. The priest will place the woman before Adonai, unbind the woman's hair, and put the grain offering for remembering in her hands, the grain offering for jealousy, while the priest has in his hand the water of embitterment and cursing. The priest will make her swear by saying to her, If no man has gone to bed with you, if you have not gone astray to make yourself unclean while under your husband's authority, then be free from this water of embitterment and cursing. But if you have in fact gone astray while under your husband's authority and become unclean because some man other than your husband has gone to bed with you, then the Kohen is to make the woman swear an oath that includes a curse. And the Kohen will say to the woman, May Adonai make you an object of cursing and condemnation among your people by making your private parts shrivel and your abdomen swell up. May this water that causes the curse go into your inner parts and make your abdomen swell and your private parts shrivel up. And the woman is to respond, Amen, Amen. And the Kohen is to write these curses on a scroll, wash them off into the water of embitterment and make the woman drink the water of embitterment and cursing. The water of cursing will enter her and become bitter. Then the priest is to remove the grain offering for jealousy from the woman's hand. Wave the grain offering before Adonai and bring it to the altar. The priest is to take a handful of the grain offering as its reminder portion and make it go up in smoke on the altar. Afterwards, he is to make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then if she is unclean and has been unfaithful to her husband, the water that causes the curse will enter her and become bitter so that her abdomen swells and her private parts shrivel up and the woman will become an object of cursing among her people. But if the woman is not unclean, but clean, then she will be innocent and she will have children. This is the law for jealousy. When either a wife under her husband's authority goes astray and becomes unclean, or a spirit of jealousy comes over a husband and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he is to place the woman before Adonai and the priest is to deal with her in accordance with all of this law. The husband will be clear of guilt, but the wife will bear the consequences of her guilt. Okay. This is going to be an interesting chapter. Jehovah says, that the following people are um, not welcome among his people. They can't stay there. They can't reside there. And he divides them into three categories. And these three categories are persons who, one, are what's called sarah. Those who are suffering from sarat, skin disease. A person with, second of all, a person with sov, a discharge from the genital, organ, genital organs. And third, anyone who is tamay nefesh. They're unclean because they've touched a dead person. Those three people are not welcome to live among God's people, it says. Now, basically, these are what this amounts to is that these are three very serious kinds of ritual impurity. 
And each of them demands a period of seven days of ritual cleansing after it's determined that the condition that's the cause of the impurity isn't present anymore. And whether male or female, these ritually unclean people have to be removed from the congregation of Israel and set outside the camp. Now understand what that means in our modern day language. Excommunication. This is serious. This isn't changing residences. And whether male or female, these ritually unclean people must be removed from the congregation of Israel and set outside the camp. Once that purity is cleansed, if it ever is, that person can resume his, his or her life among the community. But until then, that person's separated from everybody else. Usually the excommunicated lived in caves or tents outside of the village or city they came from. Now verse 3 states that the reason for this severe method of dealing with these unfortunate folks was A, so that their unclean state doesn't defile others within the camp of Israel, and B, because in the midst of the camp of Israel is where God dwells. Thus, no impure thing can be near to him. And verse 4 says Israel obeyed God in these instructions. Now, probably of all the subjects we've discussed in this Torah class, clean and unclean, which also, of course, includes the categories of kosher and unkosher, um, clean and unclean is probably the most difficult to really grasp for the 21st century Western mind. Particularly for a person schooled in traditional church settings, right, where pastors and teachers have done a pretty poor job in explaining what it all means. Right, and what it might have to do with us as modern believers. Typically, as most of you are aware, the concept of clean and unclean is dismissed as utterly irrelevant to modern Christians and therefore it's just a waste of breath to even discuss it. Now, ritual uncleanness, which is the same thing as ritual impurity, was and remains a very serious issue for those who worship the God of Israel. But it's discussed in detail in the Old Testament as opposed to the New. Why is that? Let me answer that question with a question. Why would Yeshua or the apostles repeat everything that was already long established as the foundation for proper worship and obedience to God? Why would they do that? Okay. Jesus was the Word. He didn't have to revalidate his own word. He didn't come to defend what was already settled. Okay, What makes ritual impurity so serious, you see, is that it's contagious, spiritually contagious. Okay, When someone was put outside the camp with Surat, a skin disease that's usually mistranslated as leprosy, and leprosy didn't even exist among the Israelites until after the time of Babylon. Okay. It was not so somebody else didn't contract that disease per se. Rather, they did it 
because a person with tzarat threatened to defile others in a spiritual way, thus denying the others access to God as well. So the Israelites, so to the Israelites, a skin disease or a genital discharge or coming into contact with a dead body, among other things, all amounted to approximately the same result. Separation from God and from, from the community of God for anywhere from a few days to forever. And frankly, that's exactly what it was meant to demonstrate. The problem was that a ritually unclean person presented a danger to himself or herself because if they came too near God in that condition, they'd be destroyed. And they were also a danger to the entire community because uncleanness was transmissible. A clean person touching an unclean person might become unclean themselves. Not ill, but unclean. And an unclean person could transmit their uncleanness to objects like dishes and pots or even a chair that they sat on or a bed they lay in. And then once that object became unclean, it could transmit its uncleanness to a clean person who unawares came along and sat on that chair, lay in that bed, used that pot to cook in. Now I know some of you may feel like such talk about becoming unclean from touching someone or something ought to be about some deep jungle backwards tribes in New Guinea or Australia. All right? And not about the people of God. But here it is. All right? And on the surface, this does sound almost like magic and sorcery and superstition at its worst. But this is a good time to remind you that while every one of these laws were real and absolute, and God fully intended they be scrupulously obeyed, they also simultaneously gave us a physical demonstration and a learning tool designed to progressively reveal the deepest and most critical spiritual truths of the Lord. I had a wonderful discussion one day with Dr. Robert McGee, who's the author of Search for Significance about the nature of spiritual truth and then how you would express them in words. And we, we agreed that at the absolute best, words or even word pictures or drawings, illustrations, fell far short of communicating to humans the infinite depths or heavenly heights of God's principles and laws. And the, re the reason for that is so simple, but it's profound. Yehovah is spirit. We're flesh. The spirit world may have boundaries. I don't know. Right? But whatever those boundaries are, they're so enormous compared to our... Uh, so wide, so huge compared to our very narrow in severe physical boundaries and limitations that it's probably best to just oversimplify and say the spiritual world has no limits that we're aware of. Okay, um, Regardless of whether we are saved or unsaved, as humans, we live in a four-dimensional universe. 
of length, width, height, and time. A human word, whether it's a thought or spoken or written, is confined to aptly describe only things which operate in the same four dimensions that we live in. Spirit, you could say, is a fifth or other dimension, perhaps. It's a thing outside of our ability to fully grasp or define. Spirit is not the first four dimensions plus another one. Spirit's an entirely other dimension. It's a whole other dimension than the four that we're aware of. Nothing made of four-dimensional material. You, me, the chairs you're sitting on, the building we're in, the Bibles we're reading, the words on these pages, the physical, can fully describe or even reasonably contemplate that which is of the fifth or other dimension which is spirit. Okay, So we do the best we can. We have some understanding of God, but very little really. Okay? He doesn't answer our every question. You know why? We simply don't have the capacity to understand his answer. Therefore, when it comes to the tabernacle and all these rituals and procedures that are performed here, and the priesthood, and all the biblical feasts, the one that should be starting any moment now. These are all extremely limited facsimiles, physical facsimiles, of spiritual principles. So we must never think that the physical model is all there is, or that it's never fully adequate. Yet neither must we think that the physical model is incorrect or that it's not worth observing. It's just incomplete as compared to the original spiritual object or principle it's demonstrating or foreshadowing. Now as concerned the principle of ritual uncleanness in the camp of the Israelites, you see the ultimate danger and concern was that the constant uncleanness of the people would eventually defile the camp and then the camp would be eventually become so defiled that God would no longer live there among his people. That was the concern. And there was a very definite quid pro quo present here. God would remain among his people only so long as his people were scrupulous in keeping the camp ritually clean. Now let that sink in for a minute. The Israelite people, God's people, had definite obligations if they wanted God to continue to dwell in their midst. And I'm going to tell you unequivocally that that pattern of obligation to Jehovah remains as do all of his heavenly patterns. We have obligations to God if we want him to dwell with us. Okay. Those obligations may not be so much as about ritual as they are about faith. 
especially since the advent of Yeshua. Yet as James said, faith without works is a completely dead faith. And allow me to paraphrase that in modern terms. A so-called faith that doesn't produce any tangible service to God by whatever means he directs is a faith that doesn't even actually exist. It's all words. Since nearness to God is an inherently dangerous proposition, which we don't ever talk about, by the way, this is dangerous. Many preventative measures were taken beginning with a scrupulously purified priesthood who were the only ones to get anywhere near him. Levite guards were deployed to keep the unauthorized people away and even execute those who insisted on trying to come near. And a system of dealing with ritual impurity was established that involved removing the unclean people from the area of the camp of Israel, and then in most cases, there was a way of making the unclean clean again so that they could once again enjoy God's presence in their lives. Now, this is another principle that, of course, has never become obsolete. Believers have always been required to take preventative measures so as not to bring immorality which is unclean behavior into nearness to God. And since Jehovah dwells with us, his modern day tabernacles, us, we must not allow impurity to enter us because then it brings it near to him. Doesn't it? We must not join ourselves to prostitutes. We must not engage in any kind of immoral sex, Paul tells us. We must not defile ourselves with wanton drunkenness. We must not worship false gods or idols or worthless symbols. We, as his believers today, are to have the attitude of the Levites as we stay alert and chase away every danger to the holiness of God who has graced us with his presence. That's our job. Yet humans, as humans, we can't avoid impurity. And this reality traces back to the fall of Adam and Eve. Perhaps the primary reason for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was so that the high priest could remove all the uncleanness from the sanctuary, God's earthly dwelling place, that built up during the previous year from just having people all around it. I mean, the mere fact that humans, regular Israelites and in the priests too, were constantly present in and around that sanctuary meant that imperfection and therefore sin and uncleanness were present and it defiled the place. Even the high priest was not seen as a perfect being. He was merely declared to be the holder of a high priestly office. And he was authorized to perform certain vital functions to the service of the Lord. Now this is a very interesting chapter, trust me. Even though we read some stuff in here that we may go home tonight and go, that sounded really strange. Drinking water with dust in it and all like this. 
when we continue this next week, you're not going to want to miss this. All right, There are connections between this and some things Jesus did in the New Testament that are mind-boggling. All right, So we'll see you next time.